You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning, church family. Ant here, pastor at Midtown Tunash. Thank you so much for joining us online for our Sunday worship service this morning. Very glad that you are with us. As we've been doing already, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can go ahead and turn there. Looking forward to getting into verses 1 through 13. One of the things that I've said throughout this series is that my desire as we go through this series, is that we, as the people of God, as we study this book, would grow not only in our understanding of the book of 1 Timothy, but would grow as students of the Word of God. So we're just working our way through verse by verse, and we'll do that today as well. The text that I'll be preaching from today is one where Paul is instructing young pastor Timothy, pastor at Ephesus, on the two specific offices that he's calling him to uh, ordain members of the church to fulfill the offices of overseer, which for our purposes in our context and our church, we prefer the term pastor, and also the office of deacon. The book of 1 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul to instruct Timothy and the church at Ephesus on how to function as the church, as the called out people of God, as the household of God, as Paul refers to it. And there are a few things that I want to make sure we're very clear on before we get into the text for the day. For the day. Number one is that all of God's word applies to all of God's people all of the time. The reason I say that is because I don't want us to be tempted to believe that if we're not aspiring to the office of an overseer or pastor, or if we're not aspiring to the office of deacon, that maybe this this passage isn't as much for us. But as we grow as students of God's Word, it's important that we understand that all of God's Word applies to us. One of the important things to note about this passage also is that as we'll look into the qualifications of an overseer and the qualifications of a deacon, these qualifications are really just aspects of spiritual maturity that God calls all of his people to in his word. And one, another reason it's important to understand these qualifications is so that you as a member of the church, as a member of the, the people of God, the household of God, have an understanding of what to look for whenever someone is presented as a candidate for an overseer or pastor or when someone is presented as a candidate for a deacon. It is important that all of us are aware of what is expected and what the qualifications are for someone to be fit for those roles and for those offices. Uh, and also, just, just so you know, I'll try my best to make sure you, you can understand how this verse applies to you, even if you're not aspiring to one of those roles or one of those offices. So Paul is writing again to Timothy, a young pastor at Ephesus, and he's leading him on how to be the household of God, how the church at Ephesus can function as the church was designed to function. And we'll get into some of the specifics of how those offices work in, in that call for the church to function, function as it should. But one thing that I want to emphasize first and make sure is on the very front of our minds, even though it's something that I think most of us probably already know and understand, is that God loves his church. He loves his church. If you are a follower of Jesus, he loves you. 
The church is called the bride of Christ, that collectively we make Christ's bride, and Christ came to make us his own, to, to invite us into a relationship where we have a special intimacy and connection with him. He loves his church, and every single thing that he does for his church is an aspect of that love that he has for his church. He loves his people. Christ abandoned heaven for his bride, but he will never abandon his bride for anything. He suffered on the cross so that one day his people will never experience suffering again when we're brought to ultimately be with him forever. He lost his life so that his people could experience eternal life forever. He experienced condemnation so that his people, his bride, his church could experience and know the joys of justification before a holy and righteous God. He was bound like a criminal so that he could set his people free. He, the very son of God, was treated like an enemy of God so that us who were enemies, so that we who were enemies of God could become and be treated like sons and daughters of God. God loves his church and everything that he does for his church is a result of the love that he has for his church, including the instituting of these two offices of overseer and deacon that we will be talking about today. In verses 1 through 7, Paul instructs us on the highest position of authority in the church, which he refers to as the office of overseer. Let's get started in verse 1, and then a little later we'll get into verses 8 through 13 to look at the qualifications for the office of deacon. 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'll start with verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. After this verse, Paul is going to give about quick, 14 quick qualifications of those that are to, to be in the office of overseer or pastor, as we call them in this church. This is the highest office of authority. I want to make sure we have clarity on what these qualifications are so that those who serve in the role of overseer like myself can be held accountable and so that you know what to expect and look for as someone who is to model what it looks like to follow Christ for the church. So I'll briefly teach on what these are and maybe give a little bit of special attention to some that might be a little bit more difficult to understand. We'll go into verse 2. First qualification, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. And I even believe that the rest of these qualifications kind of fit under this one as a heading. That there shouldn't be, no one should be able to bring a legitimate accusation against an overseer that will cause legitimate harm to the church or to the ministry of the gospel. Overseers don't have to be perfect, but they need to be an example for the church. And I will say, again, for the most part, the rest of these qualifications, I would say, fit under this heading. The second qualification is the husband of one wife. A literal translation of the Greek there would be that he is to be a one-woman man. If your pastor has a side chick, you got problems. It's just as simple as that. I don't know if there's much else that needs to be said about that one. Next one, sober-minded. This means to be sensible. It means to be thoughtful. He needs to be able to practice restraint and moderation because he's not, over, he's not to be overly impulsive and ruled by his desires and at the spur of the moment. He's to be sober-minded, to be thoughtful and not be led astray by maybe feelings that would lead him away from what God would have him to do. He is to be self-controlled. 
He needs to be able to control himself. He should display a level of self-mastery, be able to deny himself when need be. He needs to be respectable. He needs to have an orderly life. His life should be a life that when examined by others is seen as respectable by believers and by those who don't follow Christ. He needs to be hospitable. He needs to be a lover of guests, of those who are new and around He's to be fond of those he should love to welcome others. He's to be able to teach. This is a big one. This is a, a distinction, one that's not written in the qualifications for deacons. He must be trustworthy to be able to explain the Bible. Not saying that he has to be a charismatic leader or, or he has to have the spiritual gift of teaching even, but when he talks about God and his word, he needs to be able to do so and explain the word of God in ways that are helpful. Verse 3, he is to, be, he is to not be a drunkard. He can't be controlled by alcohol. He can't be one who readily abuses alcohol, or, or as far as I, I understand this verse, or any other substance as well. Drunkenness can't be how he escapes the difficulties of this life. He should not be violent, but be gentle. Listen, if a pastor is giving somebody these hands, it better be to pray on them, to pray for them, I should say. He can't be one that always lets his anger get the best of him, but he should be gentle, meaning not using excessive force. He is to not be quarrelsome, not getting into unnecessary arguments that can bring division. He's got to be able to teach without being overly argumentative. He's got to be able to make his case without getting into arguments that are divisive and that are harmful to the body of Christ. He must not be a lover of money. He can't be controlled and ruled by his desire for money. He can't be pastoring solely for the money. His life can't be consumed by a desire to always acquire more money and more possessions. Verse 4, he must manage his his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He's got to be able to lead his household. Paul is actually saying, hey, look at how this brother is with his children. Do his children follow his leadership? Do his children submit to him? If not, he is not fit to lead in the church. Obviously, children sin and disobey, and that's to be expected of anyone's children, including the children of pastors. But if his children, generally speaking, just refuse to submit to his authority, he's not ready to be a pastor. It says he's not managing his household well. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Paul doesn't give specifics for how long someone must be a believer before becoming a pastor, but he needs time to mature. He needs some time to grow as a follower of Jesus. He says, if you ordain him too early, he may become puffed up with conceit and then fall into condemnation. This is a difficult, challenging role spiritually for anyone who's, who is in this office. I was a believer for probably about 15 years before becoming a pastor, and I still at times wrestle with, with thoughts and feelings of being puffed up and being conceited and also times of feeling self-condemnation and feeling insecurity at the same time. This, this call to maturity and time to mature before becoming a pastor is a protection for those who aspire to be an overseer, for those who aspire to be a pastor. 
Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The way unbelievers see anyone who is aspiring to this office is an important aspect of this person's life if they're going to be a pastor. If everyone who's not a Christian just hates this person or thinks extremely lowly of them, he's not fit to be a pastor. If he relates super well to believers but can't get along with someone who doesn't follow Jesus, he's not fit to be a pastor. It's important to note, again, that there is nothing in this list that is only applicable to pastors. Everything we see here is, are things that we should all be striving for as believers. Here's what that means. Pastors are not this elite set of Christians that sit higher than everyone else. These qualifications for, for being a pastor are things that all of us as followers of Jesus are called to. There are many who put pastors on this extremely high pedestal, and then if the pastor sins, especially if it's a disqualifying sin, then people's faith are ruined because they are looking at pastors incorrectly. Pastors are Christians first. They're followers of Jesus, and these qualifications are actually things that all of us should be walking in. What this also means is that you need to hold yourself to a high standard of holiness as well. It, it, it is incorrect for you to look at pastors or church leaders and think, well, they should walk at a certain standard or level of holiness, but not hold yourself also accountable for holiness in your life. These are things that all of us should be exemplifying and living out as followers of Jesus. Pastors are normal Christians that aspire to a noble task, as we see back in verse 1. I'll read it again. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And if we look at the beginning of verse 2, we see that the reason that pastors must have these qualifications is because that this task is very noble. Let's read verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 again together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore... An overseer must be above reproach. And then, of course, he goes into the other qualifications. What's my point? That the reason that these qualifications are necessary for someone to be in this office is because of how noble this task is. The Greek word that's translated noble there is a word that can mean beautiful or excellent or honorable or magnificent or praiseworthy. This is a weighty position and it's not to be entered into lightly. It's not to be given to someone just because they have a gift of speaking or just because they have a gift of teaching or just because people like to follow them. This task is so noble. There are specific qualifications that are needed, given to us by God because God loves his church and he is looking out for his church. As one in the role of a pastor, I get the privilege and honor of leading and, lo and loving and serving God's church, Christ's bride, and I get the responsibility and the accountability that comes with knowing that one day I will have to give an account to God for how I led his people. This is a noble task. It isn't just a stage and a pulpit. It's not just a way to be seen. It's not just a path to notoriety. It's a noble task. It's not just a platform that someone can use to make much of their own name. It's a task of great sacrifice and servanthood. 
It's weighty, not to be entered lightly, and it's only to be assigned to those who are qualified. After much prayer, after much discernment and confirmation from those who are in fellowship with the one who aspires to this task. The other word that I want to focus on uh, in those first two verses is the word aspire that we see in verse 1. The Greek word that's translated aspire in verse 1 is a word that means to stretch oneself out for something, to touch it, to grab it, to reach after something, to desire something. Later in chapter 6 of this very book, this very letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, the same Greek word is translated as craving in the ESV. Or in the New American Standard Bible, in the NASB, it's translated as longing. This is a, a desire, a longing for something, a reaching out for something. Sincere aspiration for the honor and the responsibility of this noble task is something that I absolutely always would look for when someone is being considered for the role of pastor slash overseer. And to our members, I'm letting you know this because I think it's good for you to have some amount of insight into the vetting process of someone who is a potential candidate of being a pastor. If someone is maybe recommended to me or someone brings up in conversation an amount of interest in being an overseer and being a pastor, one of the things that I'm going to want to know is how much they desire to be so, to be in this office, to be in that role. In fact, if someone came to me today and said, Aunt, I heard the sermon. I'm interested in being a pastor. What do I need to do? I would probably say something to the effect of, okay, cool. Let's talk about it. And if that person never initiates with me again about being a pastor, if they never follow up with me because of their, how much they aspire to be a pastor, that'll be the last conversation we ever have about it because I'm not bringing it back up to them. I need to know that they have such, they, they aspire to this office, that they are so called by God to be in this office, that they are willing to take the initiative necessary to fulfill the role. Because I am concerned that if you're not willing to take the steps necessary to, to attain this role to, that you aspire to, then I'm nervous that when it gets difficult, that you won't take the steps necessary to continue on as a faithful pastor. I need to know that you want it. I need to know that you have enough aspiration to take initiative. I need to see the longing, the craving, the desire, the reaching out after it, the stretching for it. And if you won't take that initiative to just set up a meeting unprompted by me, I'm just not convinced that the aspiration necessary is there. And we don't want someone in the position of an overseer, the position of a pastor that has to continue to be prompted over and over again to do what God is calling them to do. To be honest, I would like to see a relentless nature about someone who is interested in being an overseer. That you would, be, that you would so aspire to this role that you would be relentless in your pursuit. And because I believe if you're not relentless in your pursuit of this role, then you won't be relentless in your pursuit of remaining faithful in the role after becoming a pastor. I'm looking for a reason to believe that when someone you're giving your life to serve, you're pouring your life out to and, and serving them and trying to help them to grow and mature in Christ. When that person lies on you or, or tells someone something about you that you expected them not to say, that you'll continue on because you're relentless and you know that you have been called to this. 
I need to know that if those things said about you get back to, get back to your wife or to your family and it causes hurt for them, that you're going to continue on because you know that this is something that God specifically called you to do, that, you, that your aspiration for this role is rooted in an inspiration by the Holy Spirit that will allow you the ability and the resilience to continue on and persist even when it's difficult. I need to have reason to believe that even when it's, when it's just not fun anymore, when all of the exciting things that were in your mind when you became a pastor and what you thought you were going to see the Lord do and all the fruitful ministry that you wanted to be a part of, when it's not happening the way that you thought it was going to happen and you don't have the same excitement about it that you had in the very beginning, I need to know that you're going to continue on because you have been inspired by the Holy Spirit himself for this position that you aspire to. There are many roles in the church that I think someone can function in and flourish in without necessarily aspiring to that role or aspiring to that position. But the office of pastor, in my estimation, is not one of those roles. And I believe if you are to truly flourish in that role, you need to be called by God. And I believe the church will suffer greatly if that is not the case. To illustrate this point, I want to use a personal story. In the last three or four years, or the last three or four years of being a pastor have greatly affected the way that I do small things, even something like the way I interact with my phone. Because of the phone calls that I've gotten when maybe someone just lost, lost a loved one or maybe someone's in a really bad or difficult situation or maybe someone is being very divisive in a church and I need to have a conversation with them, or maybe there's someone who's been in and around and plugged into our church, and this has actually happened before, that, that was missing for a period of time, and their family and loved ones and friends were looking for them, and all they knew that, is that they were around a group of people that they probably shouldn't have been around. When you've gotten enough phone calls like that, at least for me, when I get a phone call from a member at a time that seems weird or strange or random, there's a bit of fear that comes up in my heart. There's a bit of anxiety that I begin to feel because I've gotten enough of those phone calls at this point to know that I don't know how I'm going to be able to emotionally deal with what is about to be said to me. And this is when members are doing exactly what they should do and just reaching out to the pastor and letting me know that this has affected now the way that I even deal with my phone and the way that I answer my phone, I need to know that anyone aspiring to this office, anyone who desires to be in this office has a relentlessness, a resilience about them that they will continue on even when it begins to change their lives, even seemingly the small things. Obviously, every believer should aspire to sacrificially serve God's people, but the need of this is heightened for, for pastors, for overseers in my eyes. In the next six verses, Paul continues on in instructing Timothy and the church at Ephesus about the leadership offices, and he continues on to talk about deacons beginning in verse 8, and he goes on for six verses. We'll begin at verse 8. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified. Since Paul just gave the list of qualifications for overseers, because it was a noble task, and since he uses the phrase likewise here, I believe he's implying that the task of being a deacon is also a noble task. It's also a beautiful and excellent and honorable and praiseworthy task as well. It's also weighty and not to be entered lightly. He says deacons likewise must be 
dignified. This is a word that means honorable. It means to be respected for their character, not double-tongued. They can't be the type that says one thing when they're around one group of people and then says another thing when they're around another group of people. They need to be trustworthy, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. These two, as far as I can tell, seem to echo the same sentiments of qualifications of overseers where Paul says that they can't be drunkards or lovers of money. Deacons can't be addicted to alcohol or some type of substance. They can't be so greedy that they're willing to to use dishonesty to gain money. In verse 9, he says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Oftentimes when Paul uses the word mystery, he's just referring to something that wasn't previously fully known or previously fully understood or fully seen, but now has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, saying that even though a deacon isn't prim, even though that the office of deacon isn't primarily a teaching office, deacons must still hold, hold firmly the truths and doctrines of our faith. But they aren't only to, to hold it, but they are to live it out. That's, that's what it looks like to, to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It's to, it's to know and understand and hold firmly to the doctrines of the faith and also to be living a life that is consistent with the truths of Scripture so that the deacon might be able to have a clear conscience as a follower of Jesus. This is to allow deacons in many ways to be a model for the church. Verse 10 says, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Similar to how overseers slash pastors need to not be new converts or recent converts when they are ordained into the office, deacons must first serve and prove themselves to be blameless. They should be tested. They should be examined I believe this is very similar with the call to pastors to be above reproach. Verse 11, their their wives must be dignified. Sorry, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. If you're reading this in the English Standard Version of the Bible, you might notice a footnote there that says that women, or that, that word for wives can also be translated women. That the word there that is translated wives here is a word that oftentimes is simply translated women. And there's actually no word there. There's actually no pronoun there that comes before the word wives that shows that the women that he's being referred to belong to a husband or, or anyone else. So the, NSB, the NASB actually translated, translates it, women must likewise be dignified. I believe here he's given room for women to be deacons and potentially given some specific qualifications for women deacons. If you want to know more about our, our views on having women on deacons, you can reach out to me. I actually put together a few videos for our church last year when we ordained our first women as deacons, and I'd love to share those too. You can reach out to me through email, which you can find on our website at midtowntunotch.com. But to give one specific reason why I believe he's opening up this office to be available to women, and also if you're uh, interested to know why we believe that men should be in the office of overseer or the highest office of authority in the church, I did deal with that in the sermon in the previous week, so you can go back and, and find kind of our position on that there. 
But one of the distinctions between the qualifications for the office of deacon that Paul gives here, starting at verse 8, contrasted with the qualifications that he gives for overseers and pastors in the previous verses, is that he never says anything about women specifically to give qualifications in the first part of this chapter when he's talking about the qualifications for anyone in the office of an overseer. So even the ESV never says that the overseer's wives must live in this specific way which makes sense, again, given the, the things that, we, that I talked about last week, but specifically for deacons. I believe if he was referring to deacons' wives, it wouldn't make sense for him to have qualifications for the wives of the deacons, but I have qualifications for the wives of the overseers and of the pastors. He goes on to make the point about women. I believe he's referring to women deacons are to likewise be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, same thing he said about overseers, and faithful in all things. They need to be dependable and reliable and honest. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Just like overseers, I think this is very important to note and emphasize just a little bit. Just like overseers, deacons need to be doing a good job of managing their household. This repetition makes me think that we should really begin to see this as a mark of Christian maturity, being able to manage one's household well, being able to manage one's children well, is a mark, I believe, based on what we're seeing here in the repetition of these verses, for those who are blessed enough to be able to have families, to be able to lead, a mark of maturity is to be able to manage and lead that household well. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing, I want to focus on that term, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here it seems Paul is saying that a people who serve well in the deacon role will gain a good standing, or some translations say a good reputation. It seems Paul is saying that serving well as a deacon is worthy of honor. And as serving often does, it also helps us grow in our faith in Christ Jesus. I want to comment about deacons gaining a good standing, but first I need to explain a little bit about the role and about the function of the role in the church before I talk about what I believe that means for our church, that deacons gain a good standing. The Greek term that is translated deacon in the Bible is a word that essentially means servant. So those that serve in the deacon role are servants of the church. And throughout church history, the church has looked to Acts chapter 6, and seen an example of when we noticed the first deacons, or as far as we can tell, the first deacons are being ordained in the office. We don't have time to turn there and read there, but essentially what's going on is that there are Jewish Christians that that spoke Greek. The Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were complaining because their widows were being neglected by the daily feedings. So the word of this gets to the apostles, and the apostles begin to think that they don't need to neglect their ministries of preaching the word of God and of prayer to be able to serve that word deacon, to be able to serve the tables. So they elect, I think, six or seven highly qualified men filled with the Holy Spirit to serve at the tables and make sure that everything was distributed well. So with this in view, deacons are seen as those who serve in a way that allows the overseers to focus on what they need to focus on the most. They are trusted and vetted leaders who have been ordained and serve and provide leadership. And when they do it well, we see from Paul that they gain good standing and good reputation. And here's the thing that I'm concerned about specifically with Midtown Two Notch and our deacons. 
First, we have very faithful deacons who have been vetted and who, have, who serve our church very well. I meet with them together once a week, and for most of them, I meet with them at least once a month individually apart from that. So Hannah is our deacon who's over our kids and families ministry. Delisha, Delisha and Mark tag team work together over our life groups and our shepherding ministry. And Traymond Davis is over our outreach ministry, which includes also our benevolence ministry. And so that they might fulfill their role well, and they do not know I'm going to say this. I didn't talk to them about this at all. This is something that I really began to think about and ponder and meditate on after sitting with this passage a bit. I believe that so that they might fulfill their their role well, and so that our church would function well, the church that Christ cares about and establish these specific roles and these specific offices in, I believe as they serve well in their departments, that we as a church could do a better job of honoring our deacons in our church in a variety of ways. Number one, just honoring the role that they are in, that the role of the deacon is to make sure that the the overseer, those, those in the highest position of authority, aren't bogged down with specific tasks that other people can do or specific leadership roles even that other people can do so that I, specifically for the context of our church, can focus on the things that I need to be focusing on the most. And one way that we can honor that is make sure you don't go above them in the chain of command in our leadership pipeline and in our leadership structure. So if you have a, a recommendation or thoughts that you want to share about our, our life groups and our, and our shepherding ministry, which includes our men's times and our women's time, go to Mark and Delisha about those things before coming to me. They understand that if it's something that I need to be involved with, they'll reach out to me very quickly. I stay in very, very regular communication with them. Same thing for our kids and families ministry. Same thing for our outreach ministry. Honor them in the position and the role that they are in in the life of our church. By if you have something that you want to say regarding those specific departments, go directly to them instead of coming to me about those departments as they have proven themselves to be serving well in those roles. There are many things that they step right in and lead in and things that I often don't have to deal with because they are equipped well to lead and serve in those roles. And there's another aspect of honoring them that I believe our church can grow in. When we think about deacons gaining a good standing and reputation and being worthy of honors, they serve well in their roles. I I believe that in general at Midtown Two Notch, our church does a really good job of honoring and supporting me. I truly believe that. I truly believe that our church sees and understands that it's a very weighty position, a very noble position to use Paul's words. And thus, I feel extremely supported in general by our congregation. I believe you guys are very good at that, for which I am very thankful and which I brag about that all the time to other pastors as well. At the same time, I feel like our deacons carry a lot of weight for our church along with me, but don't always get the same honor and support that is due someone who, is, who has served and is in good standing with the church and has served well as a deacon. It's like they're great at supporting me and carrying a lot of weight that I get and that often gets put on me, but I feel like they don't get the same support that I get even though they carry a lot of the weight that I carry as well. And I think some of it is just because a lot of what they do is behind the scenes. And if you're not a part of that specific department, then you might not know all the different ways that they are serving and that they are leading. But at the same time, Paul 
does talk about them being in good standing, and which I understand to mean they, they, they are worthy of, of honor and good reputation within the church. And so I mainly want to encourage you to make sure you keep our deacons supported, lifted up in prayer and encouraged as they do carry a lot of weight in our church. And I'll be honest, it's been a difficult ministry season for us. And I'm talking even before the, before the pandemic, it's just been a difficult time for myself. It's been a difficult time for, for our deacons. I see it in the weekly meetings. And my desire for you to continue to support them and encourage them is not primarily just because I like them and they're my friends and I want them to be feeling good, but primarily because, as I said in the very beginning of our time together, Christ loves his church. He loves his church. He died for his church. He came to free his church, that his church might be all that he designed the church to be. And he gave two specific offices of overseers and of deacons. And he did that because he loves the church, which, uh, which should cause all of us to conclude that our church will not be exactly who God has called us to be if our deacons and our overseers are not both working well together and serving well in our church which means our leaders in our church need your support, your love, your prayers. I want to encourage you all, as I feel like you guys are already doing a good job of keeping me encouraged and supported, I want to encourage you to do the same with our deacons as well, as they have gained a good standing by serving very well. Again, God loves his church. And I ask that you would consider these offices of elder and deacon as an extension of that love, or overseer and pastor and deacon as an extension of that love. So let's continue to keep the leaders of our church lifted up in prayer and encouraged that we might continue to live and function as the household of God that God has called us to be. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for your people. Father, thank you for sending your son to come and die to rescue us, to make us your own to make us the, the, the called out, the holy people of God, this, this household of God called to show off your goodness and your love and your glory to the world. Father, please help all who are in the office of deacon now. Please help me and any others who will be in the office of deacon or overseer in the future to continue to live out and be an example of these specific qualifications that we see in your word. And Father, help us also to bear in mind that these truly are things that you call all of us to. And I pray that you would use this passage to help us grow into maturity as your people, individually and collectively, as the household of God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.